foreverfarms.org or mainefarmlandtrust.org. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Common Ground Radio with your hosts from Mafka is up next. Culture host. Oh, okay. I'll start over. Good morning. Welcome to Common Ground, an hour on local food and agriculture, hosted by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. My name is Melissa White Pillsbury, and I'm the Organic Marketing Coordinator at Mafka and today's host. This is a monthly show airing on the first Friday of every month at 10 a.m. here on WERU. We're open to suggestions on future show topics and guests, so please contact us with your thoughts and ideas through our website, www.mafka.org. Today, we are discussing the meat industry in Maine. As the demand for food from Maine farms has grown, we've seen certain items like seasonal vegetables become readily available through a variety of markets throughout the state. But at the same time, other main foods are still relatively difficult to find, and one class of food that falls under that category is meat. One of our guests today is Ben Slayton, co-owner of Farmer's Gate Market in Wales. Farmer's Gate is a full-scale butcher shop that specializes in pasture-based meats. Ben and his wife Erin took over the shop a few years ago when it was known as Little Alaska Farm Market and have since developed relationships with over a dozen farms to sell their meats through the market as well as raise some of their own animals. We're also joined today by Tom Gilbert, co-owner of Herring Brothers Meats in Guilford. Herring Brothers has a retail store and a full-time USDA-inspected meat slaughter and processing plant. The company has been in business since the 1920s and is now run by the third and fourth generation, being Tom, his wife Andrea, and their two children. Herring Brothers is also a Mofka-certified organic processor, which means they are one of only a few places in Maine where certified organic farms can bring their animals to be processed. We'll be talking with Ben and Tom today to learn more about the meat industry in Maine, why we don't see as much Maine meat in the marketplace as we do other foods from Maine farms, and the role theirs and other businesses play in growing Maine's meat industry. But before we begin the conversation with our guests, I'd first like to introduce my colleague that's here in the studio and share a few seasonal items of interest about what's going on at Mofka and beyond. Russell, good morning. Good morning. So Russell Luby, Mofka's executive director, and happy to be here this morning. Happy to have you. Um, a few things that we have coming up for Mofka is um, next week we have a home kitchen licensing workshop. It's next Wednesday all day. Um, and that workshop is designed for farmers and others interested in selling foods processed in their home kitchen. The workshop will cover licensing requirements, food safety, and liability insurance topics. Um, so if you're interested in attending that, there are a few slots open. Or as of yesterday, there were. Uh, you can go to our website, mofka.org, for more information on that. Um, Mofka is also running a film series this winter in cooperation with Maine Farm Land Trust and the Sebastocook Regional Land Trust. And those are being held on the first Wednesday of the month, I believe through March. And um, the films are shown at, at our education center in Unity. And uh, December's film, which will also be next Wednesday, is The Greenhorns, which is a documentary about new farmers in America. 
and coming right up so for many of you the uh, agricultural trade show is a big event you know, in Augusta a chance to meet with other farmers and that is Tuesday January 10 11 and uh, Wednesday the 11th and Thursday the 12th and the Tuesday the 10th is Mafka's annual meeting and a whole series of programs so um, please keep that on your calendar for after the holidays I'd like to remind you that you're listening to Common Ground Radio, an hour on local food and agriculture, hosted by Maine, the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. And today's show, we're talking about Maine meat. Uh, we'll be taking calls later on in the program, but first, we would like to hear from our guests. In the studio, we have with us Tom Gilbert from Caring Brothers Meats. And joining us on the phone today is Ben Slayton from Farmers Gate Market. Thank you both for joining us today. You're welcome. Good morning. Ben, you there? Oh, hi. I'm here. <laughs> Good. Um, per, maybe we can start out by having each of you introduce yourselves um, and give an overview of what you do and what role you think your business plays in uh, Maine's meat market. Uh, Tom, would you like to begin? Yeah, sure. I'm Tom Gilbert from Heron Brothers Meats in Guilford, Maine. And we employ around 20 people at this point. We have uh, about doubled our size two years ago. And our big business at this point is private labeling. We have probably 80 to 100 farmers that we private label for. And they sell their product from stores to farmers markets to out of their house. And it's been nothing but a snowball for us. And good business. Great. And you, you recently went through an expansion? Yes. Yes. We both so, uh, doubled our size in the building and added another smoker. Now we've got two smokers going and a 52-foot freezer. So in addition to the, the cuts, you also do some processed? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. We do from Lincoln Sausage, and everything we do is basically by hand. I mean, equipment is way overpriced, and we try to buy a little at a time so we don't uh, get too in debt. <laughs> and, and Tom, is this uh, is the bulk of your business beef or pork or uh, I, I assume those are the two major ones for you, and you do some lamb as well. Right, I'm going to say about fifty percent pork and fifty percent beef, and then probably you know. 20% lambs, goats, and of course we do do a lot of wild game. So that comes a little problem in October, November. But, you know, in my business, anybody can put a shingle out in November and cut meat or say you're a meat cutter. That's my opinion. But I have to worry about my crew February, March, April, May. And that's why a lot of people don't make it in this business because I've, I'm always looking for more business for year-round, you know. So we squeeze, and I have a very good crew, very good young crew. Great. That, that seasonality piece, I think, is something we'll come back to. But first, let's hear from Ben. Hi. Uh, my name is Ben Slayton, and I'm um, my wife, owner of uh, Farmer's Gate Market in Wales. And just to give the audience a... a a bit of perspective, we just got a new freezer that's 14 feet compared to Tom's 52-foot freezer. So we're at the um, other end of the spectrum. 
but we are um, we work with a, a network of farms, um, and we don't do any private labeling. Uh, instead, what we're doing is trying to um, give farmers that we partner with uh, recognition on the package that we then retail. Uh, so it's a much smaller um, scale effort, but in, a, in a many ways similar to what Herring Brothers is doing in terms of giving farms an outlet to, to broader markets. And do both of you buy livestock from other animals and then uh, from other farms and then resell it? Uh, yes, we do that. Always have done it. I've been in the meat business for 40 years, and we've always bought from local farmers and uh, tried to retail wholesale, however, to get, you know, to make the farmers so they can get rid of their livestock. And that's all that we do, Russell. And and so, Tom, you said you have roughly eighty farms that are the kind of the core of your of your supply processing partnerships, um, mostly in Piscataquis County. Uh, no, actually, there's not a lot in Piscataquis County. It's kind of all around the horseshoe down around us, you know, from Blue Hill to Skowhegan to Edmonds, wherever they come. I mean, we used to just wholesale animals, you know, and then we got into the niches of smoking, private labeling, and because basically big business took over. So we had to come up with some niches, and that's what we come up with. This was only like probably 10, 12 years ago, and now it's become, like I said, a snowball effect, and everybody is out there trying to peddle their own product, which is a good thing for me. So when you say you used to wholesale, that means you used to sell primal cuts to other retailers. Well, basically we sold most of the product to like uh, Kirshner's, Jordan's, the ones that made the hot dogs and the hamburgers, mm -hmm. you know, big business. We used to slaughter like 125 beef a week, every week, mm -hmm. and then... I'm just saying they kind of drove us out, and right. they went out. Somebody bought them out, so, you know, so we're sitting there like, what do we do? Right. So, and then we preached, you know, we want to do a good job, so we was more into quality work, quality, quality, and now it's become back again quantity. <laughs> Everything comes full circle, right, right. Russell? <laughs> Well, and, and what you've just been talking about, Tom, is really a challenge for a lot of farmers who who used to have those kinds of wholesale outlets, um, and really the wholesale outlets in Maine for livestock have really diminished over the last 25 years. Um, and that leaves you in the position of, if you're going to raise animals, you have to f carve out one of those wholesale outlets for your animals if you're going to sell live or sell to a slaughter facility or you have to figure out a market for your, figure out and develop a market for your meat. Right, it's all about marketing, whether you raise one animal or 500. It really is. In the state of Maine, you know, there's no big processes, so most of the big farmers, the cattle goes to Pennsylvania. And, and Ben, you know, I've been, to your, I've been to your market, and it seems that that's one of the critical pieces for you as well. You're basically trying to grow a retail market 
both in a you know in Leeds where the where the facility is, but also taking the retail market on the road a little. You want to talk about what you're doing there? Well, yeah, um, I, you know, it's an interesting concept. It's the kind of a, the niche market versus commodity market, and what we've tried to do is really embrace the, the smaller scale niche market. Um, it's a difficult industry to do that in because it, the industry tends to be governed by these really large scale commodity issues. But um, what we're trying to do at Farmers Gate is really just embrace the smaller scale um, niche markets and, and kind of celebrate the fact that these, this need is coming from um, smaller scale operators locally and that inherently um, brings accountability to, into the system. Um, that you know, our job as butcher is to make sure we know exactly who we're working with um, and what their feed programs are and how they're raising their animals so that we can then relay that information on to our customers. And our customers are coming to our retail outlet, uh, which is in Wales, um, but we also are building um, other outlets um, and trying to reach into different markets uh, so that we can take on new farms. Obviously, you know, what we're trying to do is give more farmers the opportunity to, um, to, to make their farms more efficient. And for many of them, that might mean scaling up a little bit. So we, we think our, our responsibility is to try to find new markets um, without sacrificing the, the uniqueness that um, comes with each, with each farm. Uh, so we're trying to stay away from commodity systems where every animal that comes in just becomes anonymous. Uh, we want to keep the, um, the farm of origin intact with, with the animal because that brings the story of the farm, which what we're finding is what most of our customers are interested in. They want to know who the farmer is and what that animal was eating and how it was raised and was it respectfully slaughtered and so on and so forth. And and. Ben, I think the only difference that I that I know from between your two operations with Tom is that you do poultry also, correct? And uh, yes, we um, we built a, a state inspected. Um, I guess that's not quite the right term, but a, a, a facility that was inspected by the state, and we now operate under the um, twenty thousand bird exempt, exempt or exemption, um, which allows us to buy live birds and process them on site and sell them retail. So for the listeners who perhaps aren't familiar, I'll, I'll try to give a, a, a brief um, overview of the licensing situation, and Russell can correct me where I get it wrong, um, to slaughter and sell uh, meat in Maine, you need to have it done in a either a state inspected or a USDA inspected facility. And there are exemptions to those to that requirement. Um, in poultry, uh, you can either get a what's called what's called a twenty thousand bird exemption, which means you're um, you're processing fewer than twenty thousand birds a year, and you've built a facility that meets the same standards as a state inspected facility. And the other uh, inspection is uh, under one thousand birds, and that's mostly for farm scale. Um, and again, you have to have a facility that meets the state requirements, um, and you, but you can do it on your farm without having an inspector there, and you can do up to a thousand birds a year, and and sell them 
direct to your customer. The 20,000 bird exemption, you can still do a retail, a resell. So in other words, Ben can still resell that bird to, to his customer through his, through his store, whereas on the farm, you can only sell direct to the end user. So you can't sell it to a chef at a restaurant or you can't sell it to the Belfast co-op for them to sell to their end customer. Okay, I'm getting I'm getting sneers, so I'm not sneers. Um, it, raise eyebrows. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's just so no. I think I think that's the heart of it. But I think the way I would talk about it is, you know, the meat that's moving in in interstate commerce is federally inspected. So if it's moving around the country, it's been um, processed at a federally inspected facility, no exceptions. Um, over time, the the federal government realized that sometimes animals don't actually cross the state borders and set it up so you could do state inspection um, programs. And Maine has had those and then given them up and now has them again. Um, the state standards are supposed to be equivalent to the federal standards. Um, that is, that is, that's the way the regulations are written. But the, you know, the big difference is that you don't have to have somebody on site five days a week. It makes it a little bit easier for the smaller facilities to get somebody in the door. Um, the the poultry stuff is just even more complicated because of all the the federal government really doesn't want to go out and send anybody out to do inspections. The state stepped in a little bit, but there haven't been a lot of plants that want to do state inspections. So most people are running under what's called a federal exemption. And uh, Tom and Ben, you guys are on the ground dealing with this stuff all the time. So, you know, we don't we need don't need to dive into the heart of the regulations. But it thought you know, for me, the big part is it's complicated, and that's why most farmers don't don't do their own stuff. They take it to somebody else because the regulations are so complicated to deal with. Well, I I just feel like if if the main program is supposed to be have the same regulations as the federal program, then why have we got the main? Why not be federal? You know, let the federal flip the bill. Why involve the state and in, in spend the state's money? I'm just always been confused with that main meat problem there. Now the, uh, I I worked for ten years at the main Department of Ag along the way, um, and one of the one of the big issues has always been that the feds are basically not doing don't want to add more inspectors, so they. They short people unless you're going to run a unless you're going to have an inspector in there five days a week. You end up on a on a short rotation, and the state meat program was set up to to try to get a cost share going. Um, I think it's helped that is there are more plants under inspection than there were before, but it doesn't solve the basic problem of of volume and having enough inspectors and the state doesn't have enough inspectors and they've been short for the last year plus. Right, because I believe that they, the slaughterhouses that are <coughs> under state inspection just has an inspector go from plant to plant so they're short on their program too, yeah. you know. But I just feel like some federal uh, slaughterhouses dropped the federal program and picked up the state because I feel like they thought it was going to be an easier program. Not necessarily for any other reason. What astonishes me is the the inspection cost. I think the last time I looked at it, it was ninety three dollars an hour to have a federal inspector in your plant, and I go, "Wow, you got to move a lot of animals through your facility to to cover those costs." Well, you mean for myself? Yeah. Do you have just just anything over eight hours? 
Ah, so the first eight hours are uh, the, are covered. Yes, by the USDA. So it's just anything over eight hours that I have to pay overtime for. So I try to minimize that because I am under a custom exempt. So after four, after four o'clock, I can legally do custom like your pig, your beef, you know, for your own use. So it don't cost any more. And and the term custom that we're talking about is for animals that are taken to a facility and returned to the owner and not going into commerce. Right, right. And and cost in the coolers, I got to keep them separate and everything else. But with the inspector there every day, because he keeps track of that, make sure I'm doing everything right, because that's his job. Blue tag, red tag, green tag. Is this right, how it all goes? Right, right, right. So, Tom, all of your private labeling work, that's all under inspection, correct? Yes, yes, that has to be. In, in fact, getting back to the private label, you know, not everything I do isn't uh, straight from the one farmer and he's selling his product. I mean, private label means like uh, I could put Melissa's family farm and she could actually get the meat from me and she can sell it anywhere. So it's not necessarily, uh, like I said, you can do wholesaling. She could become a wholesaler and have her own label on it, and I could supply all the meat with to her. Tom, so don't that don't mean it's Tom, there. Don't give her any ideas it, here. It today. don't necessarily <laughs> mean it's their product to start with. Right. <laughs> ben, are there any um, kind of nuances with? the kind of business that you're running with licensing that you think would be interesting to, to share? I know you were working on some different licensing issues as you've yeah, well, gotten with started. Poultry, um, you know, we, we are operating under that exemption, and I apologize for opening that can of worms, but I think you did a great job explaining the, the poultry um, regulations. Um, we had a really good relationship with uh, the state, um, and, uh, and that has worked out very well for us. On the uh, red meat processing, you know, pork, beef, and lamb, um, I don't have as much of experience in this. We, we have a very good partnership with, uh, with our slaughter facility, um, that, uh, which is state inspected, and, uh, and then they deliver the carcasses back to our shop um, in their refrigerated truck. And then uh, because we're doing the, the bulk of our business direct to consumer, um, we, we don't have to have a... Um, an inspector on site at all, uh, which gives us a lot of flexibility in, in processing. And we can process into the wee hours if we want to, um, which has worked out well for us. But, you know, we're eventually probably going to have to um, make a decision on whether we want to have an inspector in, in the house due to the, the volume. Um, there's only so much we can sell direct to consumer. And if we want to do more wholesaling uh, or private labeling, uh, that would be that would be one major obstacle for us to to take on. Um, so I'm I'm that's why I was asking Tom uh, about his private labeling because that's that's the, the question I'm curious about. But for for the current time being, uh, we don't we've stared clear of the um, the inspector issue. But 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 I think there is an exempt, isn't there? Like forty fifty thousand that you can wholesale without having an inspector there. Yeah, yeah, there right. is, and we take right. we take advantage of that. Okay, um, and I think it's uh, yeah, separated beef, pork, whatever. Each, right, each, each individual. Right, species. right. Yeah, and 
And I think what's really exciting to me about this conversation and about what's happening is that a lot of people in Maine have traditionally raised an animal or two for their families. And, you know, as we've seen the economy changing over the last couple of years, we've actually seen a lot of people trying to figure out if they could turn this into a business. So going from one or two to four to six to eight, and then all of a sudden you realize, hmm, maybe I don't actually know how to do this, you know, and they start. And then you go looking for a facility, so a Herring Brothers or a Farmer's Gate, and you try to figure out the relationship so that you can move that larger volume of animals uh, into the market. And, you know, this is where a lot of the conversations at the state level are is just, okay, um, we're starting to starting to rebuild some of the capacity that's been missing for 20 years where so many of the animals were were moving out of state to auction and not really being processed here. And at the same time, we're, the markets are still very small markets. They're the markets at your facilities. They're the, the chefs that you have relationships with. They're the smaller retailers. But we haven't got the critical mass to be the, the meat that's in the supermarket for the average person yet. And it's going to be it's going to take a long a long time to figure out how to do all those things again. Well, I think you're right, Russell. The, the most important thing is that there are people out there now, um, like Tom um, and myself, and, and a lot of farmers who are at least trying to understand what the rules are and try to figure out how they can work within them, uh, and maybe to some degree, at some day, ch- change them a little bit so that it's more um, accessible and, and possible for Maine to produce more meat and get it. Um, more distributed. Um, so it is, I think, an exciting time, but the challenges are still still mighty. Well, well, I think in order to pr- uh, process more main beef, I think we have to get, like, the state involved and put out bids, you know, to handle the state-funded institutions. And I know other states, because I have done it before, is given, put out bids on their ground beef and supply them, and then they distribute it amongst all the institutions. I mean, that's an angle to look into. So that's for like schools, like places that whatever is funded by the state or, okay. by yep. state money. You know, why not put it out for bid? Don't go with just the big companies. You know, right. e- even if they might be a penny or two cheaper. Hey, support your taxes here. I think the opportunities for that kind of thing um, are increasing. There was legislation that was passed recently that allows schools, um, when they're doing their purchasing, to, uh, it's, it, before it was not allowed, they were not allowed to have a geographic preference um, uh, in their bidding process, and now that is allowed. So that, that actually allows them to pay a little bit more for something that's local, whereas before they, they, they were more obligated to go with the cheapest, whatever that was. Right. I, I've heard that they had kickbacks from the government or the state or whomever if they buy local or within so many miles from their schools. So. Getting close. The, the, the legal framework is there, but the budget's really not there yet. So we're, we're, we're gaining on it. And some schools have been doing really innovative things like buying whole animals from farmers 
so that they can get a, an affordable price and then grinding up the whole animal, not worrying about the cutting and then f- ending up with an affordable hamburger mix that, that competes with the boxed stuff from out of state. So, um, so a few people are starting to kind of push the boundaries there. I'd like to remind you that you're listening to Common Ground Radio, an hour on local food and agriculture, hosted by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. And you're listening to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and WERU.org. This is a call-in show, and we will wel- we do welcome your calls at this time. You can call into the studio um, by calling 469 469- Zero five hundred. Um, today we're talking about Maine meat. How do we we have lots of options? It seems, or more increasing options for for getting Maine vegetables on our plates. How do we increase our opportunities for getting more Maine grown meat on our plates at the dinner table? And our guests today are Tom Gilbert from Herring Brothers Meat up in Guilford in Piscataquis County. And Ben Slayton from Farmer's Gate Market in Wales, which, Ben, is that in Androscoggin or Kennebec County? Uh, Kennebec. You are in Kennebec, yeah. Um, so I'd like to hear, until we get a call, maybe we could talk a little bit more about um, opportunities for growth or, or for working more with farmers, what are what are what are the, the mistakes you see being made out there that you can help farmers along with? Well, I I feel like most farmers that I that I do business with uh, outsell their product. I mean, I feel like they actually could use more of it. Most of them have learned how to sell and where to sell, and most of them are looking for more. So I feel like uh, it's not a, as a big an issue as it was a few years ago for them. That that the markets are there, but the but the supply chain is, hasn't caught up yet. Right. I don't think that they are raising because they don't want to get over you know what they could sell. So there's a fine line there. But most of them that I do business with uh, usually are looking for more. Oh, I could have sold more. You know this type of attitude. So. I think that the uh, markets are there, or, or they found them now, you know, and they know where to go. But in the same sense, I think on uh, as far as putting more main meat on the table, I think really we've got to search for the bigger supermarkets, you know. I mean, you go into the bigger chain stores, supermarkets, look in the line. Do you see any main product? No. Did it, done it, looked. You know, and I know it's all about packaging and appearance, and you know it's a high tech business, but I feel like they should uh, get involved with us at this point do um, I'll display my ignorance here most um grocery stores supermarkets they do they 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 cut up their own primal like they get carcasses and cut them up, or do most of them not do that anymore? Well, some do, some don't. Basically, go, go ahead, Ben. Uh, my, um, I, I obviously haven't visited every supermarket, but my impression is that most supermarket and many butcher shops are are getting boxed beef. Um, they're being um, raised out of state, out of state for sure, processed out of state, and then distributed um, to 
to supermarkets and butcher shops uh, throughout the country in boxes. And most of that meat is, um, you know, comes with complete anonymity. Um, so that the, the people handing the meat to the consumer have no clue uh, where it came from. And, uh, and so I, I think that's, that's one of the, you know, the issues that we're trying to address. Um, Right, but the consumer should have the option, is what I'm saying, in the store. They should have the main or they should have that. And there's no reason why they couldn't buy the box meat from Maine. I mean, you know, all you got to do is vacuum up the primals, put it in a box, and there it is. And they can cut it just like they cut the Western box meat. Yep, I agree. And, I, and you're, Tom, you're in a situation, I think, probably where you could... Um, you could service that market. I know we're not. We're, we just don't do enough volume, and we wouldn't be able to meet the, the price the price points that grocery stores would like to see. Right, but even I, I, even if you can't supply them all, you know, I feel like put them in the stores you can, and if they run out, they run out, and they get some more the next day. I just think that the consumer, you know, if he's got the option and it says buy main, buy local, or just the everyday meat from out west, which one are you going to buy? You know, if the price, I think Maine beef is considered way pricey, and I don't really think it has to be. Tom, have you tried working with any of these supermarkets to get your Herring Brothers label meat in there? Well, actually, we're in uh, talks now. So. Oh, okay, <laughs> good. I look forward to seeing your meat in my local Hannaford store. <laughs> Hmm. She can she Where? can name the brand because that's the only store in Unity. You're not right. I live in, yeah. but yeah. you don't buy meat there. <laughs> not meat. You don't buy meat there, right? Uh, no <laughs> Tell comment. Me no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I uh, oh, go ahead, Ben. Your question about the opportunities. Um, um, the demand is, is clearly there, uh, and you know, as you mentioned, with vegetables, locally grown vegetables, many of them organically grown vegetables are being distributed more widely throughout the state from Maine, um, even pushing into deep into the winter season, if not year-round veggies. Um, that has really created, you know, obviously nationally, you know, a fervor for, you know, knowing a farmer and eating more locally raised or grown products. Um, and it, what I see from the, from the meat industry side is it's, we're lagging behind because meat is largely dominated by big industry, and what that ultimately affects is the price. And, um, but I think that the exciting part is that people are beginning to understand that, um, that there, is, there is a value to food, um, and that more and more people are beginning to get more comfortable paying a little bit more for something that's more local. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, from a, in a large from a large-scale perspective or kind of an overarching perspective, it's a really exciting time. The opportunity is definitely there. Whenever there's a demand, an increasing demand for something, then you just, it just takes a little creativity and, and gumption um, to, to create your opportunity. Um, right down in the thick of it, it's really difficult um, because there's such a gulf between the prices that people are willing to pay and the true cost of producing meat that's locally raised, sustainably raised, organically raised here in Maine. Right. Uh, so and that's our big, no. the education is the, yeah. the big right. um, 
project for us. <laughs> everyone. <laughs> the burden everyone. falls on all oh. of us. Yeah. The farmers, you know, the policymakers, the, we think this is the reason why we're in the business. Butchers have the supreme role of being able to tie together the piece of meat that they're giving to the customer um, and all the information that has preceded it. Like, where did it come from? And how is it handled? How is it processed? That that's, you know, there's only one person who can do that, and that's the person who processes the meat and then gives it to the consumer. But but that's always been a problem with the big uh, companies in talking with them about the main meat is they say there's no consistency, you know. I'm saying let's embrace that. <laughs> you know, obviously, you know, we don't want bad product, but it's like the, you know, the terroir, you know. Like every every farmer's going to be a little bit different maybe, and it's not... Um, it's not necessarily a bad thing, you know. It, it's a, everybody is unique, and you're buying a unique product. Um, again, we, we there's you, you want it to taste good, so we have to make sure that all of our all of the producers here in Maine are doing a good job. But you know that that's a market based um, situation where if they're producing bad product, it's just not going to ever work, and those producers will fall out. Um, but to have a little bit of inconsistency, I think, is okay. I'm going to interrupt just for a second to remind our listeners that you're listening to Common Ground Radio on WERU-FM and that we welcome your call today in the studio to ask questions, join in the conversation. The number here in the studio is 469-0500. And today we're talking about main meat and um, all the fun topics around um, how to get more main meat onto main plates and the businesses that support that happening. Um, one thing that one of you, I can't remember who, mentioned that I thought was interesting was um, about how many butcher shops aren't doing actual butchering. <laughs> and I know in Maine, uh, farmers markets are um, defined by state statute. And it sounds like maybe butcher shops could use the same uh, kind of not regulation, but at least definition that you actually have to cut meat to be call yourself a butcher shop. <laughs> That's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. Um, uh, one of the things we're most proud of at Farmers Gate Market is that we have a rail system and we have a lot of prices. Oh, we're getting a little bit of a funny um, interpretation of your. Speech. Can you repeat that? I'm sorry. Do you want me to repeat that, Melissa? Yes, please. I think you had a, a little funny connection with the phone. Oh, okay. Um, one of the things that we're most proud of at Farmers Gate Market is that we have a rail system, which is basically the the support system for taking a hanging carcass, um, which then allows us to break it down and cut cut from the rail right to the final package, uh, which is a piece that's missing in a lot of um, a lot of other meat shops um, who are taking in boxed beef. And, um, and so I, I don't, you know, the way we've defined butchering is that you cut from the rail. You know, that, that's the, the way we learned how to do it, and, um, and we think that's an important kind of traditional aspect of, of butchering. Um, but it would be interesting to, you know, to hear what Tom thinks about that. I know he's got a probably a very significant rail system <laughs> Well, when you go from start to finish, you know, I've I've had uh, and hired a good many of men that was butchers, but when they got to my place, 
<laughs> they had to have a few more lessons because they didn't actually know where the top round come from or the eye round, you know, it come out of a box. Well, right. I got news for you, it didn't. Somebody has to get that bone out of it. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's another game in itself, you know. So it took a lot of training for to get men so they knew where it came from. And most people nowadays, yes, they can slice a steak, but as you see, Ben, that uh, where does it come from, right? Right. I mean, your butcher's got to be able to tell you, you know, not just you know what farm it comes from, but where it comes from on the animal. Right, yeah. right. And and that's what I like. That's why in my game, I like to bring up young people, you know, and they live it right with me. You know, I I like young men, and I like to train them right from the scratch. Okay, we do have a caller on the line. Can you say your name and where you're calling from? This is David. I'm calling from Brooklyn, and uh, I just thanks for the show and for the continual focus on uh, feeding ourselves right. And um, the bottom line, you can't do anything else unless you do that. But um, uh, the meat... When I grew up uh, down on the edge of Pennsylvania, Dutch country in Pennsylvania, the Amish land, um, we raised, we'd, we'd, you know, the, the neighboring farm would sell us a small uh, steer pretty regularly. And we'd, you know, stake it and water it and grain it and, uh, you know, move, go move it from place to place every week. And it was, you know, it was something that uh, was my job as a teenager to take care of that steer. And uh, at the end of the the summer, off we'd go in uh, somebody's pickup. wasn't even ours. And uh, we'd see little Max, you know, he'd come back all wrapped up in steaks and <laughs> white packages and it was pretty nice. Uh, I I just w- wonder how far because I haven't tried to do that here in Maine at all, uh, though I'm tempted to and would like to in the future if I live long enough, uh, be able to reconstitute that that way of of getting my meat because um, I think there are plenty of steers uh, available, and there's Lord knows there's plenty of grass available, and um, uh, I wonder if there's plenty of butchers available. I just wonder what the what the scene is like out out on your end of the line. Whether whether you've got enough of a of a capacity. Whether this is something that, as a growing a self sufficient community, we really need to look at more closely how to how to uh, amp up our uh, our butchering facilities. So that we could deal with that kind of an eventuality, where you know, I mean, I know the 4-H does it, uh, but uh, I mean, I'm talking about a lot more people than do the 4-H eventually. I mean, you know, as we come more towards this. Okay, thanks. Yeah, uh, thanks for your call. Um, if you don't, we'll 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 get you off the lines because we only have one line for incoming calls, but we'll we'll discuss your your question. Thanks. Well, I I mean, I'm booked up right now until Christmas you know, which isn't really that far away, okay? But I'm going to say like five years ago, I pretty well took them as they called, but that just showing you the snowball, everybody's raising more and more of their own because they want to know what they're putting in their stomach, what they're eating. So it has become a little uh, more hectic in the month of August through December. 
But there's a case, too, where everybody wants to slaughter in the fall, so what does the local butcher do February, March, and April? So, you know, so that's why we crowd and crowd and do all we can, all of us butchers, in these months for those slower months. I'd like to give my special thanks to you for being here today, knowing that this is a very (laughs) busy time of year for you. Yeah, the the place where I've taken my animals for a custom slaughter for my own use is, um, you know, basically there's no openings unless, you know, when the animal is born, if you haven't booked the animal, you might as well just figure you're sometime deep into the winter before you're taking it in. Right, but if you do this every year, I feel like, you know, you should be calling early enough. Don't wait until tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> and, yeah. I, and I get a lot of that, you know. Hey, you raise the pig in the spring, you know you're going to do it in the fall. Call it in. Yeah, it's it's. I know. I've I hear over and over that that's a huge constraint for for butch for 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 facilities all all over the state. We do have another call on the line. Can you give us your name and where you're calling from? Sure. My name is Bob, and I'm calling from Blue Hill. Hi, Bob. You have a question or something you'd like to share with us? Yeah. Well, I just wanted to to thank you for putting on uh, the show about meats. Uh, a lot of. Um, these type of shows center more around vegetables, and uh, um, so it's good to hear something about meat. Um, and for my two cents, um, um, yeah, we could use uh, uh, more butchers. I, I go to um, um, Herring Brothers competitor down in uh, North Anson there, and, um, um, you know, they're just as busy, and and I when I make my appointments, I usually do it in the spring for the whole year, and um, I uh, I direct sell virtually all of my uh, beef and pork uh, through uh, newsletters and farmers markets and things like that, things like that. So um, the demand is definitely there. The one big problem I see um, with beef, especially, is um, we're never going to be able to compete with um, um, beef that's imported from the West because it is a lot more expensive to grow here, especially if you're grass-based because you're feeding hay six months of the year. And unless you have enough land to, to produce your own good quality hay, um, it's tough. I mean, um, that's the big struggle. And um, so I guess that's my comment, and I'll jump off and you guys can talk. Thanks for your call, Bob. Yeah, I, I I think that's an interesting observation that just the the nature of the meat that's being raised in this part of the country is is different from feedlot beef. You know, you know a lot of Maine um, young stock traditionally have gone to the Midwest to become feeder cattle. Uh, now, the last few years, more of that more of those animals are sticking. That is, they're staying in Maine, but. We don't have the huge grain infrastructure of Iowa or Illinois, and we don't have 30 and 50 and 200,000 head feedlots, and that's good for the state. But it means if we're going to maintain that kind of really grass-based, diversified livestock production, you have to step up and support it. You You can't just say, well, I like that, but then not pay the extra 25 cents a pound to, to buy the local meat. Um, it, you know, because we're all in this together. If we're really going to make a difference, we have to we have to figure out how we're going to support one another, and that means we're going to have to figure out. Okay, maybe we're not going to eat quite as much meat, but we're going to eat good meat. 
Let's get, get some back. Really good. Go ahead, Ben. You know, you're saying that we're all in this together is absolutely right. There's a lot of farmers that we, you know, that we partner with and others that we know who are really putting it out on the line right now. Um, it's expensive, and but there's only so high, you know, you can only put the price up so high. Um, but that doesn't keep the cost of fuel or grain or all the other input costs from going up. They're going up at a much higher rate. Um, and, uh, and so it, to the extent we can get that education piece out to the consumer, that, um, that they should take ownership and feel, feel some pride even in um, paying a little bit more for a homegrown piece of meat. Um, that, you know, that's something that we're trying to, to really celebrate. And, and make it more of a, um, instead of, geez, we're sorry, but we have to raise the price kind of message, more of a, here's an opportunity for you to support a good, strong, local, you know, ag economy here in Maine and, and come at it from that angle. You're a part of this. You know, we've been talking about the, you know, Maine meat in general, but um, I think it would be interesting to look sp- more narrow more our focus more specifically on organic meats and um what you see either of you see as um opportunities in the the market for organic meats um or challenges or your the relationships you've been developing with certified organic farms in particular well Well, in 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 my my view you know i've tried selling more organic meat but the price because I'm up in uh, poverty, Piscataquis <laughs> County, so I just couldn't get the job done. But I do do some real good farmers that sell their own product, and like I say, they sometimes say they can't get enough. But of course, I guess they sell it where the people's got more money than up in my Piscataquis County. We've had some luck um, right now. Um, Oh, okay, Bennett. We're we're not hearing you very okay. well again. Okay. Maybe try again, and if we can't hear you, we'll we'll move on. I'll stop walking around. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, he's, he's working. I'm here. <laughs> he's walking we've around had, working. Uh, <laughs> we've had some success um, transitioning from a local pasture-raised chicken to uh, local pasture-raised chicken and. Uh, local pasture-raised organic chicken. Um, last year we sold, um, I think it was about 10% of our chicken sales was in organic chicken, and this year it's looking more like it's going to be closer to 25. And three years we we're hoping that, you know, it's you know totally flip-flopped and we're doing mostly organic chicken um, versus the, the non-organic. Um, with pork and beef, it's tricky, you know, again, it comes back to price, and the price difference is such, such a um, major factor. Um, so, you know, I don't know, I, again, this is, these are market kind of um, issues where I, we don't know how high we can go. Um, we, we're loath to find out, because that would be a bad thing. Um, we don't want to all of a sudden price ourselves right into a situation where we're having to throw meat away. So um, it's, it's something that's going to take time for us to grow and hopefully evolve and transition our customers as well as our producers uh, to more organic meat. Um, that's certainly our, our preferred option, 
Um, but I do think it's going to just take time and, and more education so that people can understand what the difference is uh, between the two. And uh, are, are you allowed to process birds under your um, license Yes, that was as a, certified organic? Or yeah, is that really a separate... Do you, do you need to get certified by MOFCA? I shouldn't be asking you. I'm the one that works for yeah. MOFCA, right? No, no, we didn't. <laughs> Our first year of business, we were not, and we were we were selling organically raised chicken, you know, uh, but not certified. And then this year, we we did get certified, and uh, we're really excited about that, and we hope that that's um, just the first uh, step in a process where, you know, soon we'll be certified in pork and beef as well. Great. Um, as, and that's as a handler? As a handler, right. Yeah. So, you know, the certification um, process is, as you know, very expensive, and it puts a lot of extra um, cost and, and, um, and record-keeping on the butcher processor. Um, but uh, it, it's for a good, for a good cause, and, um, and we're uh, excited to be part of the program. But, but we do get a uh, rebate back from the what we have to pay in, which is good. Thank you for mentioning that, Tom. <laughs> um, we do have another caller on the line. Could you give your name and where you're calling from? Hi, that's me. Yes, that's you. Uh, this is Bill. I'm in Stonington. Um, I've got a small goat dairy, and um, we put our surplus animals into meat mostly for ourselves. And i um, been doing it for quite a long time. We used Herring Brothers for quite a few years there a long haul for us though but I, I don't know I'm tuned in a little late I don't know if you've already addressed this but I want I want to hear uh, the topic or the issue of the humane final care and treatment of the animals that are brought in for slaughter if anybody's you know done anything innovative or thought of any any better way to kind of calm the animals uh, so it's been a big concern of mine and I'll get off the air and listen for the uh, Thanks. Thanks for your call, Bill. Well, of course, I'm USDA inspected, and you have to handle the animals humanely. You know, that's just one of their jobs to make sure that everything is done that way. And as far as uh, calming the animal, some people want them slaughtered right off the truck. Some people want to hold them overnight. Some people want to give them grain, pet them, whatever. You know, everybody's got their own view on that. So, I mean, we handle them as calmly as we can, but, you know, we are the slaughterhouse. So everybody thinks that, you know, meat comes in a package, but somebody has to do the dirty job. And that is one of my concerns with my business and other people that want to be butchers, you know. Not everybody wants to play in the blood and stuff. So it's always hard to find help to do that part of it. And, and and so much of it is attitude. Um, you know, Bill, one of the interesting things is that there is a nationwide conversation about how, you know, humane treatment of animals up to the final moments. And there's one facility in Maine um, near Jefferson that is is really trying to push the boundaries with gates and systems uh, following the Temple Grandin livestock handling methods. It's not a very big facility, but it's, you know, they, they're one that's really trying to figure out, okay, what's the, what, 
how, how do you balance these things out? And over time, I think that's going to become a, an issue for everybody. I have to say, I've been at a lot of facilities in Maine over the years, and I have to, I, I've never seen a, a situation where I felt like people were mistreating animals at the, at the slaughter facility. No, it's, no, yeah. I, I agree with you. But yeah. my son has gone to programs about humane handling and, uh, you know, he put down mats in the slaughter chutes and all the above items, you know, make sure there's no nails in the pens that they could get hurt on. You know, I believe we are certified by an organization to handle animals humanely. Well, our hour is almost up, and it always goes by so fast. Um, I'd like to thank our guests, Ben Slayton from Farmer's Gate Market in Wales, um, full-service full butcher shop, and also Tom Gilbert from Herring Brothers Meats up in Guilford, uh, which is a, a market and butcher shop as well as a USDA-inspected uh, facility. If you have animals you ne need slaughtered, he's one of your options of only a few. Um, please be sure to join us next month when we plan to cozy up with our seed catalogs and dream of all the wonderful things we'll be growing next year. That'll be Friday, January 6th at 10 a.m. right here on your community radio station, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill and 99.9 .9 Bangor. And until then, have a great holiday season and Happy New Year.